There are no original manuscripts to any biblical book. The Bible has been translated so many times and into so many languages that it stands to reason that the Bible would have changed over time. How can a Christian have confidence that what they believe, what the Bible says today, is what the original biblical books even said? Join me in today's episode of the Thinking Faithfully podcast as we pose the question, hasn't the Bible been hopelessly corrupted over time? Hi there, and thank you for tuning in to the Thinking Faithfully podcast. I'm your host, Terry Nesu, and I'm glad you've joined me in having conversations that matter. Greetings and salutations to you all. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Thinking Faithfully podcast. This is episode four. May we just begin by celebrating that I kept my word and have recorded again within a fortnight. Okay, this is where we insert all the thunderous applause. Yay! Thank you. Thank you so much. Now that I feel appreciated, let's dive into today's subject, shall we? Or maybe before that, a little reminder, if you're listening to this for the first time, to consider starting with episode zero and working your way up so that you're not potentially too lost, should I refer to something covered earlier, but it's not a must. It would just be very helpful to see the fuller argument for the Bible from its genesis. <laughs> Gosh. As most of you know, the content I share on this podcast is a huge mashup of content I've read, watched, listened to. Over the nearly seven years, I've taken a keen interest on Christian apologetics, which you can visit episode zero for more on that. And so in my preparing for each podcast, I generally have a feel of who I'm going to look for based on who I think addresses a particular matter well. It just so happens that on this topic, my favorite one is Dr. Vodi Bokum Jr. If you're not too sensitive and can take some jabs, I'd encourage you to look up his sermons on YouTube and be blessed by his ministry as he does do a fantastic job of addressing very controversial matters in society today from a very orthodox biblical standpoint. On this matter of can the Bible be trusted, Vodi, who was raised by a Buddhist mother and only heard the gospel in college or university as we know it, encourages his audience that no matter what happens, no matter how much it may be the case, whenever you're asked, why do you believe the Bible? Please, please, please do not say, because I was raised that way. Okay, so Vodi has like a very deep voice, and so everything he says it just sounds really cool, and like, because I was raised that way, yeah. But another popular response that people also give is, oh, because it works for me. And what Vodi then responds to that is, the Bible is not true because it works for you. It works for you because it's true. A better answer to the question of why do you believe the Bible is because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecy and claim to be divine rather than human in origin. And that actually is basically a, a consolidation of what we see 
in 2 Peter 1 verses 16 to 20. And I'll just look that up and read that out for you so that you can test for yourself to say, is that a fair understanding of what, from what Vadi has basically summarized in that, in that response. Okay, so that's 2 Peter 1 verses 16 to 20. And it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have sometimes, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So all this to set a basis for what the biblical Christian believes. And the question then comes, how does today's question come about, that of the Bible being hopelessly corrupted? And before we address that, it's important to first mention that the defenses for the Old Testament and New Testament are a bit different. So today we'll primarily dwell on the Old Testament, as that's obviously the first in sequence. And having said that, we're talking about very, very old documents here the oldest of which being those of the Dead Sea Scrolls that are between 1.8 and 2,000 years old. And now to the crux of the matter, the problem, that is that no original manuscripts exist from the authors of Scripture. And this is to be expected since they were written on perishable materials such as papyrus and leather that in time began to wear out and needed to be recopied. And in this being recopied is where much of the suspicion is is raised from because the general thought, the general skepticism is that in that copying, these manuscripts were being edited and being manipulated to meet people's agendas and the like. And because of that, we don't have the Bible as it should be today, right? And... I think one thing that's important to mention in that is that the copying also was not as we know it today. It was only between the, what, between the 15th and 16th century, really, where we started seeing the printing press take place and copies of the Bible coming out and all of that cool stuff and the Reformation and all that other amazing stuff. But essentially, the copying by physically writing out manuscripts or recopying manuscripts was where the issue where the issue is really for some people in trying to say that they do not believe that the bible is reliable and that they think it's hopelessly corrupted as a result of that to give a quote or a better summary of what the general objection is and this is how it goes that there are no original manuscripts to any biblical book the Bible has been translated so many times and into so many languages that it stands to reason that the Bible would have changed over time. How can a Christian have confidence that what they believe, what the Bible says today, is what the original biblical books even said? 
It's a great question, and that's what we aim to address in today's particular episode. Paul D. Wegner, a professor of Old Testament studies at the University of Phoenix, has much to say on this subject. And the next few minutes may be fairly dense, but I've really tried to synthesize it all so you get the gist, but see the evidence. Firstly, we must admit that truly copying errors may have occurred from extrinsic reasons, such as the fact that scribes had to copy manuscripts under poor conditions like low lighting, and intrinsic reasons, such as the fact that some scribes may not have been well-trained and may have modified copies either intentionally or unintentionally. Now you're probably thinking, isn't this podcast meant to instill confidence, Terry? Like, aren't you losing the plot? This is concerning. I felt the exact same way reading it, but it's important to be honest with the arguments and not appear to be putting our fingers in our ears and singing, Jesus loves me for the Bible tells me so. You know, we really want to ensure that we're being faithful as we do on the Thinking Faithfully podcast. Think faithfully about these things. And one interesting thing in this copying process was not all copies were the same and certain documents got much greater attention than other documents. Those documents that Israel believed to be the spoken word of God were treated more carefully than other documents, so much so that between 500 BC and 100 AD, an entire class called the Sophrim or scribes existed, existed just to copy. Their primary job was to preserve Israel's sacred traditions, the foundation of the nation. They, however, grew two types of manuscripts as a result, which I think in contemporary language we would call versions, and I'll explain why just now. But before I do that, I think from that we should already have some form of comfort that the, the transmission of the biblical scriptures over the centuries was not some sort of broken telephone. There was no one, you know, just saying to the next person that, oh, then God said this, then God said that. Of course, oral tradition existed and that was a huge part in Jewish culture, but that was not the only thing that existed for us to be able to have what we have today as we know it in terms of the Bible. So back to those two two things I called versions, right? So the first was what was called the repetition factor. And so we can call that the repetition factor version. And the second one was the resignification version, right? And what the first one was, that repetition factor, it was basically what today we know as the New American Standard Bible, because it's so literal, right? And maybe a little minute before I get into further into this, a lot of people today think that the Bible is not reliable because there are so many versions. And it's so important to realize that those versions serve different purposes, right? The New American Standard Bible I've just referred to, for instance, is on one end of the spectrum. And that end is saying we're looking for a literal word-for-word -word translation of what the original actually says. And maybe in Zim, not many, not many of us use that sort of version. So you've got the English standard version, the ESV, some call it the elect standard version, right? And that's more aiming for a literal translation from the original Greek, Aramaic and Hebrew. But the second, okay, not the second one, but on that same spectrum, you have, for instance, something like the NIV. And the NIV is now saying, this is how 
it could be read in contemporary society. It's looking for, for meaning from a particular phrase and not the literal word-for-word -word translation as it would have been in the originals. And so that's what this second, second resignification version was more like. It was more like the NIV, adopted for understandability because of the growing familiarity with Aramaic from Hebrew. But this was soon discontinued after the destruction of the temple and Judaism was dominated by Pharisees who tended towards repetition instead. So it's more like saying that after the destruction of the temple, the Pharisees preferred the ESV version as opposed to the NIV. They did not want so much of that interpretation and, you know, conforming to the society in terms of their understanding as opposed to just a literal translation of what the original text said. So there were basically various stages of these scribes and these copyists, if you want to call them, but we'll just call them scribes. And I'm just going to quickly go through some of the stages that existed and try and highlight some of the key things that happened in between them. So after these ones that we've just mentioned came the Tanaim, who were basically the repeaters, and then the Amoraim, who were the expositors, who had incredibly stringent rules for copying, such as each written column of the scroll was to have no fewer than 48 lines and no more than 60 lines, whose breadth must consist of 30 letters. And in between these two, textual criticism was also taking place to ensure that mistakes and errors weren't being carried forward. Then I'm realizing I've not actually introduced to you what textual criticism is. Old Testament textual criticism is the science and art that seeks to determine the most reliable reading at the of the Hebrew text. So textual criticism in itself, I hope you'll agree, is just the science and the art of determining the most reliable reading of a text. So what I was saying was about that textual criticism that was already occurring between these scribes, that was essentially to ensure that no errors and mistakes were being carried forward. It would be quite futile to do that just in the name of saying we are copying religiously, right? We want to ensure that mistakes are not just being carried over, over and over and over again. Then finally, about AD 500 to 1000, a fourth group of scribes called the Masoretes inherited the scribal traditions and preserved them. Their diligent labors helped to preserve the Hebrew text we have today, and that's called the Masoretic text. They took being meticulous to a whole nother level, from recording the number of letters used in a book to indicating the middle letter of a book. That's how serious these guys got. And this is the text that we use today. So you can see that from the originals, there's not actually that great deal of, you know, a number of people that were involved in the process. There's about four to five groups, but these were also people that were operating independent of each other and in different locations. So you find through that, that it would really have taken a great coordinated effort to manipulate those sort of documents it, at, a, at a level you couldn't even do today with the internet and being able to zoom call and manipulate texts online sort of thing but okay let's consider what some of these errors being corrected were because i understand that maybe something that someone may be concerned about to say okay fine they're correcting errors but what were these er errors right and you may be thinking of major corrections like Adam was in fact deceived by the serpent and not Eve. 
But no, that was not it. That would have major repercussions on the rest of the Bible. And I came across at least 10 different types of errors with really fancy names we all make of things that we all make in our in our everyday writing, such as confusion of similar letters, but things such as homophony, haplography, dittography, metathesis, and other really strange named mistakes that people make. And I think you really need to have a, a language degree to fully comprehend what all of these actually are. But I'll break down two of them because when you do look them up, they're actually not that complicated. It's really things that we all do even today. And I'll give the example of, for, for one, homophony. Homophony is the substitution of similar sounding letters or words. So several Hebrew words are hard to distinguish by sound alone. So, so that errors of homophony could easily have been incorporated into the text during periods of oral transmission. In English, let's think of problematic words such as there, there, and there, right? Those all sound the same. And I think we see even online, a lot of people still mistake those, where one is T-H-E-R-E, one is T-H-E-I-R, one is T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E. And so the sound of how these come out can easily make allow for mistakes to happen as a result of that. Another one is metathesis. And that is a reversal in the order of two, le two letters or words. And this is a common typographical error. For example, earn instead of run. So that's U-R-A-N instead of R-A-U-N. And you'd agree, if a passage said <laughs> the prodigal son returned and saw his father run, it wouldn't take a rocket scientist to, to determine that seeing his father earn would be rather peculiar. And so that would be where those sort of corrections were coming in. Right. And I hope that gives you some sort of comfort to say that whilst there were errors, there were nominal errors that account for the majority of what, what they considered as errors. But that was the result of all these normal human errors we all make, even if you were employed specifically for that. And you think of people who write books. I've read books by incredible authors that have those sort of mistakes and it doesn't frustrate me as much as a magazine or as much as a newspaper where it's just one page. But you can imagine when you've read a book is about 400 pages, you're bound to have those sort of errors. And that's what we have here. And today we have the printing press. These guys were writing these you know, with their hands. And if you look at some of the characters in the Hebrew of, of that they were using and some of how similar some of these characters were, honestly, I'm astonished they didn't have more mistakes, to be, to be, to be quite frank. And the Bible, both Old and New Testament, was written by approximately 40 different authors over a period of over 1,000 years. And yet there's a consistent and clear message throughout the book neither the Quran nor the Book of Mormon can begin to even compare to that sort of accuracy. There's extensive manuscript evidence for the Bible, including at least 300 Hebrew manuscripts and 5,800 Greek manuscripts, as well as more than 20,000 ancient manuscripts of the Old and New Testaments written in various languages and more than 30,000 scriptural quotations in the early church fathers which help confirm the accuracy of, of the scriptures. As some have aptly described it, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to 
the supporting evidence for the Bible as we know it today. But I just want you I just want to invite you to to think about it. Would you really be more confident if there was one leather bound Bible that existed throughout history? Because what we have is much greater because it's more evidence spread across 250 locations in the world. Yes, it's not 100% accurate, but it's well preserved for handwritten copies. And after all these centuries, it is still the most bought and scrutinized book in the world and continues to outlive its pallbearers. This is the word of God and it has not been hopelessly corrupted. You can trust it to say what it means and to mean what it says. It is not only reliable, it is the most reliable ancient document known to man. Earlier in the podcast, I mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls. And maybe just as a way of rounding up, I'd like to share with you a quick synopsis of what those actually are. And I found one on this website called Cold Case Christianity. Cold cold case. Okay, so this is an example of those areas we're talking about. And this would be obviously an instance of what is homophony, right? Of words that sound the same. So it's called C-A-L-L-E-D, called C-O-L-D, Case Christianity, right? And J. Warner Wallace is the founder of that. And he's an award-winning homicide detective who came to Christ at the age of 35 after investigating forensically the evidence for the Bible. And on the Dead Sea Scrolls, he says, One of the most exciting archaeological discoveries for Christians was the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were a collection of ancient writings which were hidden in caves near the Dead Sea. Included in these writings were many biblical manuscripts, including a copy of Isaiah, which was hundreds of years older than the oldest copy we had access to at the time of its discovery. Did you hear that? Hundreds of years older than the oldest copy we had access to at the time of its discovery. This was an opportunity to compare this version of Isaiah to the version everyone had been reading to see what changes may have been made over the hundreds of years. Amazingly, the message of Isaiah found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was the same that modern-day Christians had already been reading, with the exception of the types of errors we already conceded to earlier, but obviously we said have no material impact as a result of that. In conclusion, my dear listener, If the Bible were hopelessly corrupted, God could not hold us to a set standard. But it is not hopelessly corrupted, so God can hold us to account because we have his word. What a privilege that is, and may we never take it for granted. Because you must really now consider that if someone continues to insist after this plethora of evidence that the Bible is hopelessly corrupted, they may actually have the incentive for themselves that they want it to be hopelessly corrupted because they do not want God's word to still be relevant today. I appreciate today's been quite, quite hectic, but if you've managed to listen up to now, thank you and indeed well done for doing so. And I think it's important to remember that you can't always get truth at the bottom shelf of knowledge. And this is one subject that is truly indicative of that. 
A fortnight from now, I'm hoping to have what will be the last episode of this series, at least for now, because the questions of the on the Bible are truly inexhaustible. But I think we'll have a sufficient framework by then to deal with other matters, agreeing at least on that agreeing at least on the fact that the Bible is a credible document that we can rely on as we use it as a reference in other arguments going forward. Thank you again for tuning in to episode four of the Thinking Faithfully podcast. If you did enjoy it and if you would like to support it, please do consider sharing it, liking it, reviewing it, rating it, whatever you have to do on your platform, as that helps to bring it closer to the top and allow other people to find it when they do search for it. As usual, should you have any feedback, a question or any comment, feel free to email me at thinkingfaithfully at gmail.com. That's thinkingfaithfully at gmail.com. And I'll do my best to get back to you, remembering, of course, that I'm just a layman on a journey to learn, unlearn, and relearn. Till next time, keep well, stay safe, and God bless.